This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello! Welcome to the Don't Be Evil edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here as ever with Anna Shemansky. Hello. And Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. And we are going to be talking about Google and whether it has become evil and whether there's now a fight between its management and its staff over evil-related issues. (laughs) Um, We're going to talk about what's going on also workplace culture-wise in Netflix. We're going to talk about, because Anna's here, and we basically need to throw her a fish every so often. (laughs) Or oyster. We're going to talk talk to her about leveraged loans. And then if we we have one segment on leveraged loans, she'll stick around for another few months. It's great. Um, No, but we will talk about leveraged loans because they're kind of amazing what's going on with them right now. Um, And we are going to carve out a little bit of the intro to say many thanks to Lisa Marie Furler because it was Lisa Marie, of all people, who emailed us to tell us to have Faisal Islam on the show last week. Thank you. And that is why we had Faisal Islam on the show last week. And June Thomas, who basically runs podcasts for the entire world, or at least for Slate, uh, sent us a rare and special email saying, oh my God, you had a Mancunian on. Obviously, the show was amazing because anytime you have a Mancunian on, the show is amazing, which is true. So now we are on a search. I guess we are still searching for a suburbs person. If you know a Mancunian suburbs person, <laughs> then that would that would really hit the um, the sweet spot. But we do have suggestions from you. Thank you for all of those. They were very helpful. And oh, if you're a Slate Plus member, we're going to talk about a thirty-six billion dollar tech acquisition, which is huge and kind of disappeared in the news cycle. This is what happens when there are midterms. Um, in any case, we shall start, because we really do need to start with this, with the new president-elect of Brazil. Emily, what on earth has this continent-sized country got itself into? Brazil has elected a man named Jair Bolsonaro, who some people are calling the Brazilian Trump, but who's actually much worse this is um it is possible it's possible he's more like the brazilian duterte Duterte. yeah Yeah. yes duterte has been also compared to this is a man who um has said he wants brazil to be a dictatorship who makes incendiary comments about violence he wants to shoot and kill criminals just like duterte he said things about women like um don't worry, you're too ugly to be raped. Um, he said he'd rather have a dead son than a gay son. Um, and he also, um, Brazil plays a really important role in the in the planet 
because of the rainforest and the role it plays in the environment. He wants to roll back environmental regulations. Um, he wants to get into that rainforest and just suck out whatever is in there. I mean, it's it's um, a scary time for people who care about Brazil being a democratic country. I am getting whiplash here because there's a lot I don't understand about this. The first thing I don't understand about this is that the most popular politician in Brazil, by some large margin, is Lula, is our friendly, cuddly, avuncular Imprisoned. (laughs) Who would have won the election if he was allowed to run. But you know how it's weird. They don't really let you run for president if you're in jail. Um, So he wasn't allowed to run. But I so the first question, which I don't understand, is if Lula remains so popular and if the you know working classes of brazil have really risen up as a political force and have shown their strength how on earth did this you know ultra right winger manage to win the election wouldn't lula's hand picked avatar who was running against Bolsonaro, have done just as well. No, I mean, I think there are a couple things to think about here. One, that a lot of people actually didn't vote. So I think it's important to remember that even though Bolsonaro is on the far, far right, one of the things that people think about him is that he's not corrupt. And what you've seen going on in Brazil because of the Lava Jato corruption scandal, every political party has been involved in it. But the party that has been the most involved in it has been the PT, which was Lula's party. So Lula was able to kind of rise above that because everybody loves Lula. But his party was still so tattooed with this corrupt label that it's not overly surprising that you would have people that would swing towards a candidate who is outside of the norm of the political parties. The other thing that's really important, I think, with Brazil is just how violent of a country it is. It's something like 65,000 murders per year for the past two years. People are legitimately afraid of violence. And as popular as Lula was um, and his party maybe was, they didn't do very much to solve the violence problem. And Bolsonaro's whole thing is raise fear about the violence, which isn't hard because people are legitimately already afraid and say he's going to solve it. I mean, his whole he has this hand symbol he does that's like guns, you know, pew, pew, um, kind of like Sarah Palin, but in a serious machismo way. And um, I think that's very appealing. The Times had a great video um, on, on this issue, and they showed this one woman who's kind of like a Bolsonaro kind of supporter slash politician who she and these school kids were waiting to get inside some Mother's Day event, and a mugger comes up. This is all caught on camera. The mugger comes up, and this woman shoots him. Wow. And then he falls down and she keep, keeps shooting him until he dies. And then she uses that video to run for office. So that's the electorate in Brazil. To think about what has happened in Brazil in the last five years. I mean, you you have had this dramatic increase in violence. You've had a very serious recession that pushed a lot of people back into poverty who had moved into the middle class. You have this corruption scandal that has been one of the biggest in history. So people's faith in institutions, faith in parties, fear, all of this has just created, I think, a kind of unfortunate perfect storm to get a candidate like this who says, I'm, go- I'm not corrupt and I'm going to establish order. All right. So I have two, two more questions about, about this. Um, the first is that Bolsonaro is a gentleman of a certain age who served as a captain in the military under the military junta in the 80s and who is explicitly nostalgic about those days and says that he wants to go back to them. Um, 
Brazil as a country is demographically very young. Most of the electorate can't even remember the junta. But the so the first question I have is like, is it is his nostalgia for military dictatorships shared by the country as a whole? And then the second question is like, was Brazil actually a safer and in some weird way more prosperous place in those years? No, not for the majority of the population. If you're Yes, there is definitely nostalgia, I think, for a previous time on the same side that actually in the PT supporters, there's nostalgia for the best years of Lula. So yes, right now when things are going really poorly, it's not surprising you're going to have nostalgia on both sides. But one of the things I do think we should get into at some point is the market reaction to this election. And Oh, hi. The, the Vespers at an all-time high. The Brazilian stock market is surging because apparently there's some economy minister who's going to something, something, structural reform, something. Well, so, University of Chicago, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. But see, I actually think some of this is important because I think it goes to the heart of what is causing a lot of Brazil's problems, which is that, okay, the reason that the market has reacted so positively is because Paulo Guedes, right, from University of Chicago has come in and he's saying he's going to be this kind of market liberalizer and, and all of a sudden the markets believe it. But then I think what people aren't looking at is the actual history of Bolsonaro and what he has actually done while in politics. And what he's done has been he voted for Lula. He supports states intervention. He recently came out saying that they should have uh, like targeted exchange rate. And this is all important because it goes to the one main thing that Bolsonaro has done while he's been in office for almost 30 years is to support the benefits of his cronies. And this is one of the biggest... Wait, you mean he is a corrupt? Yes, he is. I mean, that's why I think it's kind of funny that people say, well, he's not corrupt because he wasn't involved in Lava Jato. And granted, almost everyone was involved in Lava Jato. But his entire can we, history... Can we say what Lava Jato Oh, sorry. It's this... Uh, it's like, it stands it's for car wash. It's, car wash. It's a kickback scandal. Yeah, It was basically the, the big Brazilian oil company wound up kicking back literally billions of dollars to Brazilian politicians okay. over the years. Right. So part of the problem that Brazil's economy has suffered so much is because they have unsustainable pension costs and they have unsustainable government worker salaries. It takes up a very large portion of their revenues. This is directly tied to the political establishment, which continues to get elected by promising people jobs, and then once elected, voting to have incredibly generous benefits to those very people and salaries to those very people. And the problem with that is that at the local level, it can actually incentivize certain politicians to keep their areas actually pretty poor, so people are very dependent on them. And then overall, it creates this system where you know you have you know debt to GDP that's around 84%. That's only going to be, if things don't change, growing higher. And you aren't making the types of reforms that are truly necessary. And while the PT under Lula was able to actually, to be fair, legitimately improve people's lives quite a bit, it wasn't done in a sustainable way. And so they didn't raise taxes on the wealthier people and they overtax the the lower income well, it's people, also just, according I mean, to the one expert I consulted. There were a lot of pro-cyclical policies and it was during a period of essentially the biggest commodity boom in modern history. Right. Like, and so... And there was a lot of spending done and they didn't do anything to crack down on pensions and what everybody said, like these are instabilities. You're going to make yourself very vulnerable. If there's a pullback in commodity prices, if the value of the REI declines, you're going to be very vulnerable, which is exactly what happened. And it happened at a very poor time in terms of the corruption scandal as well, which caused this recession to be really, really steep. So in terms of the recession, maybe the market is a little bit overly optimistic in terms of what Bolsonaro is going to be able to do. Um, In terms of 
just the future of democracy in this country of hundreds of millions of people. The one thing I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit and say is that I have some significant amount of faith in the Brazilian military to that they're not going to allow Bolsonaro to turn to turn back democracy and to turn it back into some kind of military dictatorship. I think that there will be extreme abuses, human rights abuses by the police. And I think that the there already are. I mean, the, the Bolsonaro before Bolsonaro, is, that's part of the murder rate is police let, killing people. It's going to let you know the police completely off the chain, give them complete impunity, and that's going to be dreadful. I'm worried about the police. I am not worried about the military. And I think that, um, and I think that they genuinely want Brazil to remain a democracy. And so long as the military genuinely wants Brazil to remain a democracy, Brazil will remain a democracy. Yeah. Um, the one person I spoke to who is Travis Waldron, who covers this for us at HuffPost, was saying um, people describe Brazil as a young democracy, but it's not quite so young. Like um, it's made it through the first 20 years. So the chances that it stays democratic are actually not so bad. They're pretty high. So and their institutions aren't as fragile as maybe some other countries might be. So the chances that it reverts to dictatorship, I don't want to say don't exist, but they're not as scary as some people are making it sound. I think you're right. And I think you've actually already seen Bolsonaro pull back a little bit in some of his rhetoric. And also, a lot of the things he said that he wants to do, he really can't. You know, he can't both because like some of the things with like the rainforest, there are actual like things in the Constitution that protect things. So it's actually not that easy to do. You also have the incredibly still dysfunctional government that it's going to make it hard for him to do anything. And, and and Felix, I think you're right. I don't think that most of the military wants to go back to that type of government. So I think this is going to be very bad for Brazil, because I think what is actually going to happen is not much of anything. And they need real reforms for people's lives to improve. They need real reforms. So I think it's going to be bad. But I don't think we're going to be going into like Hugo Chavez territory. To be a homer here, since I also uh, produce If Then Slate's tech podcast, we interviewed um, a professor from Sao Paulo to specifically talk about the misinformation, which I think is worth noting yeah. that WhatsApp actually played a big part in the election of Bolsonaro. Which episode was that? Was that the most recent one? That was the most recent episode, yes. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. At 10 minutes past 11, for reasons I don't understand what the significance of 10 minutes past 11 was, but at 10 minutes past 11 local time in offices around the world, Google employees this week walked out of their offices in protest at their own senior management. Yes, it was amazing. Which is kind of amazing. Yeah. I mean, this this doesn't happen in, in any company, really, let alone these happy Silicon Valley companies where everyone's in it together and we're all part of a team and we all have stock options. Yes. So um, this happened. If any of you listened last week, my number was um, the Google. It was $90 million, the amount of money Google paid to Andy Rubin after he'd been ousted because of sexual misconduct. And the piece was about um, three other executives were named in the piece who also kind of got 
packages and were secretly kind of squirreled away. And um, it sparked real outrage among Google employees. So, yeah, they walked out and um, they did. They had a list of demands that they put out there um, regarding sexual harassment and and um, including ending forced arbitration, um, more clear reporting on harassment. So it's known how male employees, how these situations actually get handled, um, clearer policies, ending um, pay inequality. I think it's really interesting that this company... And, and the one which really jumps out at me is they want an employee representative on the board, which is yes. a thing that we've been talking about a lot on Slate Money and would be awesome. Um, and the fascinating thing is that senior management really doesn't know how to react to this. On one level, um, they don't object and they um, they didn't push back at all against the New York Times reporting, except for to say it hasn't, you know, this kind of stuff hasn't happened in the past two years since Sundar has been CEO. Um, they said they they had fired 48 other workers because of sexual harassment without packaging them out in the same way. Um, but ultimately, you know, Sundar is the CEO of Google, which is a subsidiary of Alphabet. And Alphabet is still run by Larry and Sergey, who both had extramarital affairs within the company. And um, and at some point, we are going to talk to Adam Fisher, who has that amazing oral history of Silicon Valley. And if you read that book, like Google was a super sexist place yes. for many years. And, there, and it's hard to change a culture. And it's, it's clear that this culture did exist there. And it's clear it still exists. I mean, there were some um, I think Yahoo had a piece yesterday there. Some woman saying they know at least 30 other people who've been you know, sexually harassed who haven't said anything or have said things and nothing really changed for them. Um, so there's clearly some resentment festering in Google. Well, We've seen other things happen at that company, too, where employees spoke out. There was um, James Demore. Remember him? Yeah, yeah, he felt he felt empowered somehow to start like raging about like how there was this horrible um, discrimination against conservative men yes. or something. Um, but and there was a big backlash to him too. But Anna was. I was just going to say what I think. I'll be very curious to see with this is what happens because we there's been a lot of talk and for very good reason about a lot of workers not having as much power as they've had in the past. But tech workers are unique in a their very highly skilled and they have very specific skills that are needed. They also tend to be a little bit wealthier, so they have more access to lawyers. They know how to use publicity and they tend to work for companies that are want to appear to be good companies, especially because they have fears of regulation. So I'm very curious to see if this type of activity will actually cause a change, if forced arbitration will go away. And then if you could see this at other types of companies like this, and then if that happens, would that just stick at tech or could that trickle down? Yeah, that's what's so interesting to me. Like if you're looking at the um, the, the labor pool of the whole country, the best place to work would seem to be Google. These are the highest paid workers in the country. They get the best benefits, like every meal paid for, their dry cleaning done. Like literally they get so much. They're, these are the most spoiled workers in the country and and they're walking out and they're complaining about their company. I just I think that's kind of interesting. And it. I feel like it, what we're seeing is just there, there just massive inequality in in the labor market right now, and workers like Google feel totally empowered to take a stand against these policies, while everyone else is kind of like getting by by it's, you know it's the classic Palo Alto thing, though, right? <laughs> the 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 story of all 
complaints and political tensions in Mountain View and Cupertino and Palo Alto and all of these Silicon Valley towns is always the millionaires against the billionaires. <laughs> and this is what you're seeing here yeah. is you have the millionaire employees walking out on the billionaire own, uh, you know, owners slash senior management, which is, you know, the, the same kind of thing that you see, I don't know, when you have walkouts in the NBA or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, the, some of the people that walked out were contractors, um, and that's important to mention. And there are like this, there's this shadow workforce in Silicon Valley. It doesn't get any attention. So the people that hand out the free food in the cafeterias and like sweep up after, you know, the, the fancy tech workers and all this. And I don't know if they were out there in full force yesterday. I think they probably were because I think it was, as I say, it was pretty clear from the messaging from within Google that no one would look askance at people walking out. That, you know, there was no there was no suggestion that the company would retaliate against anyone who did this mm-hmm. or anything like that. So everyone was like, if you feel that this is a good thing, you should join the walkout. Mm-hmm. Even then, it was, I think, only 60% of offices actually did it. So, you know, I think it... It was a huge number of people, and it was an important walkout. But I, it's not a universally thought thing among the sort of middle to lower ranks, as well, far as I can tell. Another thing I think is interesting is that companies like Google, and we'll talk maybe talk about Netflix later, have all these like really squishy management philosophies and stances and policies where they want you to feel really at home at work and they want to bring your full self at work and then the dress how you want and la 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 but then when you look at the actual like hardcore hr type policies they're anti-worker like complaining about ending forced arbitration that's that's so much more important i think than like being able to wear jeans to work well let's talk yeah. a bit about netflix because there was this amazing wall street journal article about the netflix culture and for those of us who've been around on the internet for a while, one of the first sort of viral corporate culture things back in the sort of the 90s sometime was the net famous Netflix unlimited vacation policy. And everyone was like, oh, wow, Netflix is such a wonderful place to work. Turns out, not so much, <laughs> that they actually fire 8% of their workforce every year. Um, I did the math for my newsletter what that means is if you're in a team of four people, there's a 50% chance that one of you will be fired within two years. Whoa. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> we're all just staring at each other. Like, right. And, and, I, and I think, you know, the, the Netflix response is this idea that, well, you know, we have extremely high standards and we're, we're going to make everyone, you know, work as hard as they possibly can because they're so nervous about getting fired. But I think like both like – Replicated studies, as well as just common sense, tells you that if you have workers who are constantly nervous about getting fired, that is going to affect their performance negatively. They're not going to take risks. They're not going to work well with their coworkers because they're probably just going to be trying to position themselves. And they're just going to be incredibly stressed all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, (laughs) And there seems to be this culture of managers being rewarded for firing people and fired if they don't. There was literally an example in this Wall Street Journal story, which is called At Netflix Getting Fired as Part of the Job, which I think was a good title. Um, but the anecdote is, yeah, this woman gets fired and she says, "What? like, why are you firing me? And they're like, well, you were very slow to fire one of your workers. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, and then Netflix does deny that that's true. But um, the, the the journal story is really good. They interviewed like 70 current and former employees. And there were plenty of examples like that. 
and it and it really underscores how much of a lie the unlimited vacation policy was. And I don't even think that policy exists anymore. But the fact oh, is... Oh, it was the unlimited um, maternity leave policy. Well, there was a one year... Well, this is really interesting. That So the unlimited vacation policy, I'm not sure if it exists, but the idea was, hey, if you want to take, take as a vacation, much as you want. take as much as you want. Except for if you're constantly terrified of being fired, what that means is no one ever takes yeah. vacation. When they implemented a one-year maternity and paternity leave, people honestly thought that meant they could take a year off. And so they started doing that. And then so then they had to sort of backpedal and say, oh, wait, you know how we have this up to one year thing? We really don't expect you to take that much They're time. literally telling them now take about four to six months, I think it said, which is which is a generous policy, but it's not 12 months. It's <laughs> not 12 months at all. Um and I think there's something else with this. Um, Netflix, their whole idea, their culture is supposed to be open and free and people should feel they could be candid with each other, radical candor. Oh, it's all these like Bridgewater, yeah. yeah. But like, and they mentioned this story, yeah, like Bridgewater. And I'm thinking to myself, like, is that ever good? Is radical candor really well, good? I it's, think there could be... It s- can be mean. You know, it, it, look, it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm not saying that I don't think there can be times where being a little bit more honest sure. at work can be useful because sometimes people are so loath to be honest in a way that can actually be harmful. It can hurt people's performance because they don't know they're doing poorly. So yes, there, there are definitely ways that that can work, to, but only to a certain extent because the reality is also it doesn't go both ways. Like you may have Redalio out there saying, well, someone can give me fewer dots and then that shows, <laughs> but look, who cares? <laughs> you, you run the company. And I think ultimately when you're at a company like Netflix, this idea that people can be honest is silly. If anything, it's going to like force people not to be honest. And, and, and there are all of these like weird catchphrases and things which you need to sort of either believe in or lie about believing in. Otherwise, you get fired. Whenever I think about radical candor, I think about what it would actually be like to live in like an Armando Iannucci sitcom. <laughs> You know, like like Veep or something like that, mm-hmm. where everyone is like super smart and funny and like <laughs> saying what they think to each other, and it works great in sort of sitcom land. But like, you couldn't actually do that. No, right. you right. have to be nice. I, I feel like I've learned this because I started out my career as an editor, and now I'm a reporter and a writer. And like as an editor, I think I could have been nicer to people, and it would have been great. Because as a when you're constantly writing stories and submitting them for someone else to criticize, but writers are just so fragile. I, I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's nice for the criticism to be couched in a positive way. Play I think sandwich. It, yeah, it, I think it really, really helps. And um, I think this oh, Netflix culture just seems so mean and stressful. Agreed, although I realize this is slightly off topic. But one thing that is like often true is that a lot of male managers don't like criticizing their female workers. This has been something that, I mean, it's somewhat, when I say true, it's like somewhat anecdotally true, is that because A, women are more apt to cry. We are. I cry. I'll cried all the time. And so, or at least we're reportedly more apt to cry. And so a lot of men will not give women proper feedback mm, and it hurts their careers. Like this point. is something that, I mean, I, I realize this is somewhat anecdotal, but I've had many, many women I know who've said they have that. Then all of a sudden they'll be like, no one ever told them because the managers just did in a way that they'd be much more candid with a man. Well, I don't know. I'm thinking back to my bosses over the years and the meanest bosses who've been the rudest to me have all been women so right but that's different <laughs> that's different oh, that's yeah. you're a man yeah, that, so you can take it whereas we will it. just start exactly. crying that's true hello i'm Immy harper on the slow newscast from tortoise i tell the story of how a hong kong billionaire was silenced i got bombs thrown into my house i got people came here ransacked my computer and i i got people fractured me i got this and that but i'm safe 
and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Leverage loans! <laughs> Anna Shemansky, what's a leverage loan? A leverage loan is a loan to a company that is not investment grade. So leverage loans, does that make sense? So, okay, the first thing you need to know about leverage loans is um, basically they're junk bonds. They're not junk bonds. Though. Because, they're, because they're loans, they're not bonds. But the, the point about leverage loans is that the name makes no sense because leverage just means loan and loan just means leverage no, and it's a because weird they're loans to companies that have a lot of leverage and that's why they have a lower credit rating often because i mean like you have that so they're <laughs> in any case it's a it's a piece so they're of financial loans to jargon. companies that are already kind of in debt a lot yeah. exactly okay. exactly got it so and recently janet yellen was in the news she had an interview with the financial times where she was saying that these pose a real risk so to explain why these pose a real risk is actually to a bit explain how they are different from high yield debt. They are definitely in the same universe as high yield debt, but so wait, high yield debt really is junk bonds. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yes. So, all right. So there are junk bonds, which is what you might call junk rated bonds, and then there's leveraged loans, which is junk rated loans. Right. And you're saying that there's a difference between the loans and the bonds. Um, and this is I'm a financial geek. And this is actually one of the questions that I would ask um, people coming in for an interview at Reuters, like, what's the difference between the loan and the bond? And the range of answers we got was kind of hilarious. But the this, one of the simple, awesome answers, which would give you, like, high marks if you said it, was, um, you know, loans are complicated things which are full of covenants and bonds of fungible things which have basically no restrictions on the company at all and now Anna, explain why explain why that so no one just said well a bond is a security <laughs> and a loan is not well that's another thing you, you, could get, you could give that answer to um well okay but one of the biggest differences between a leverage loan and just a loan and a bond is that Bonds are going to have fixed coupons. Like so the rate of interest you're being paid is fixed. Okay. So if interest rates go up, the value of your bond is going to decline. Now, leverage loans are different than that. So oh, you mean so bonds are normally fixed rates and loans are normally floating rates? Yes. Or they have a fixed and floating component. So in leverage loans, the floating component, it floats with uh, LIBOR, usually three-month LIBOR. So as interest rates increase, the amount you get paid increases the interest that they have to pay you increases. So in a, in, when people are in a period where people are thinking rates may be increasing, these can provide you some protection. So even though loans in general don't offer the same yield as bonds, what loans do offer is more security in theory. So, well, I mean, I don't entirely understand this because but don't both investors and issuers have the ability to swap fixed and floating back and forth more or less to their heart's content? Why does no, it? No, if I buy a bond, that bond has a coupon on it that you're not going to change. I mean, you can use derivatives to alter like what your actual position is, but the the bond itself that's a fixed rate instrument, whereas these loans are floating rate or they have a floating rate component, and that in this in the environment like up until very recently that we've seen has been very favorable to that type of instrument because people want that protection and i think it's also important and why actually i think they're riskier than people think is because people think 
that when they're going into leveraged loans, they're getting yields that is lower, but comp- somewhat comparable to what you would want in like a more high yield instrument. But you're getting the protection of being in a loan because loans are higher. This is senior secured debt. This is higher in the capital structure. So if there's a default, there's All right, a bank- so wait, uh, let, let, uh-huh. let me just also jump in here. We're talking a little bit more financial jargon, which doesn't always mean what you think it means. Senior secured, that doesn't mean it's secured. It means if you go, if it the means company it doesn't even really mean it's senior. It's not really collateral. Yes, it is. There are assets <laughs> that are behind it that you can sell. So, w- but the bit is no more secure than the bond is. That's not true. That's <laughs> like, what she just said it was more secure. Yeah, you, a lot They're of. They're not asset backed. It's no, no, but it's, it's, there is, there collateral, there is collateral that is, you could sell in order to pay back, um, People who've lended you, who loaned you money through a loan as opposed to a bond. Now you certainly have some secured bonds, but most bonds are not. So, yeah, this is actually a significant difference. This is a lot of reasons why people are going into leveraged loans because they think they're safer instruments. Now, what I think, what part of the reason I think that these are actually riskier than people are realizing, is because so many of these leveraged loans have been issued at a lot of really dodgy companies. The Recovery rates that you're you can expect to get on these are going to be a lot lower than people would have gotten previous cycles, just because there are so many more of them. And so, wait again, so, just more more financial jargon here. When you say recovery rate, what you mean is if the company stops paying the debt, even if it's collateralized, even if you sell the collateral, the amount you wind up getting back is going to be much less than face value. Much less. I mean, it used to like recovery rate on like a firstly, and I think it was something like in the 70s cents. Now this would be in the 60s. And if you're going to a second lien um, loan, then you're talking about like a recovery rate in like 14 cents. So these are these are definitely risky instruments. And the problem is when people invest in things that they think are safer, they tend to do so in a way that is actually riskier because they don't think it's as risky of investment. Is this like financial crisis level kind of? Work? But okay, well, so there, there, there's the good news and the bad news. The um, the bad news is there's a lot of these things. We just right. hit a trillion dollars in leveraged loans, and there's never ever in the history of the world been like a trillion dollars in leveraged loans in America. We're hitting all time highs. Issuance is very high, so there's a lot of these risky instruments outstanding. Um, the good news is they're you know to Anna's point, are they being bought by people who think they're safer than they actually are? Are they being considered like risk-free on some level? The answer is they're mostly being bought by these things called CLOs. And if the CLOs wind up losing money, like, does it really make, is it going to cause that much of a problem? I don't think yes, so. Yes, I actually think it could. Now, I'm not saying that this is going to be like the financial crisis with mortgage back because that mortgage market is just so much bigger. So it's a very different. I'm not saying that. But part of the reason people are concerned about this is because what it can do to credit markets. So you are correct that a lot of these loans are brought up in securitized and CLOs. You have some others who, who buy them directly. But you also have retail investors who invest through ETFs and mutual funds that are based on these loans. But Part of the the fear is that what could happen is that going back to the idea of the floating coupon, I, I swear there's a reason, <laughs> is because as an investor, it might be great when you think, oh, as interest rates increase, I'm now getting more money. The problem is that company, now their debt service is increasing. Mm-hmm. Their credit worthiness is going lower and lower. So you really have the chance that a lot of these companies could default. And then what could happen is if you start to see these defaults in mutual funds, you're probably going to get that are based on these loans, you're going to get a lot of redemptions, which is going to push the price down. Now, as you said, there actually isn't a huge universe of investors in these type of instruments, which it's not as broad. When you have a type of market that's not as liquid, not as broad, if you start to see significant price declines, then that can really exacerbate it and it can make those price declines a lot more like severe. 
the reason that can be a problem is because that can then cause a panic where companies that aren't investment grade just cannot access credit. This is what happens in panics. It's because something generates a larger like right. so, crunch I, in credit think, that then affects yeah. the larger market. And so, so I yeah. so I want to jump in here and just say I'm I'm 100% with you on exact on everything that you're saying. Um and what you're saying is like basically the worst case scenario here is that the credit window closes for junk rated companies. And my reaction to that is Totally. 100%. That could totally happen. Um, but this happens more or less every single economic cycle. That, you know, when, when the economy starts looking, you know, go, you know, slowing down or going into recession, it becomes really hard for junk-rated companies to borrow money. You don't actually even need a collapse of the leveraged loan market for that to happen. No, it can happen anyway. It is, of course, true that in a downturn, you know, access to credit becomes becomes harder. That's true. But the reason that people are worried about these is because what turns a normal downturn into a crisis or a severe, you know, recession is when you have this type of kind of imbalance in the market that makes a normal downturn much worse. Because that's the concern is that these kind of things can spread. Because all of a sudden, if you have a lot of these companies that just can't access credit, that creates more defaults than the banks that are holding these. That puts more pressure on them. Then they have a harder time lending to other companies. And then that creates layoffs. I mean, like there's you have normal downturns. And yes, you're totally right. But the but when you have severe vulnerabilities, that is what turns a normal downturn into a crisis. Okay. And this story I have heard three times now, I would say, in my sort of like tenure as a financial journalist. Um, the mo- the most recent time being just before the financial crisis, everyone was running around like headless chickens, worried about the junk bond market and the leveraged loan market and what was going to happen when defaults spiked and people were worried about the um, floating rate debt and and all of these like parade of horribles that Anna is talking about were paraded out then. And in fact, what happened was that far from going up, interest rates went down, debt service went down, and the number of defaults was way, way lower than anyone had anticipated. And the question is, has that made people complacent this time round? Um, they're like, well, you know, we all thought the sky was falling 10 years ago, and in fact, the sky didn't fall. And so we're you know, these things are safer than maybe you might think. Or does that just mean that maybe, like, you know, this, this these kind of fears about the leveraged loan market can often turn out to be overblown? It's entirely possible. With any fear, it's entirely possible that it can be overblown, 100%. But I think there are a few differences here. One, the leveraged loan market was a lot smaller. If you're talking it was about a bit smaller. It was, about, it was, smaller. It was about, like, 25% smaller. So... um. Also, you weren't coming after a period of historically low interest rates. And I think that this has changed, like the um, people's expectations of rates has just changed so much because of this long period of low interest rates. And I do think it has made some people complacent because we just haven't seen a kind of more normal rate environment in so long. So I do think there is a little bit more of a danger if you know, if you have something happen, then all of a sudden you have a bigger rate spike than anticipated. Like nobody's ready to deal with that in a way that I don't think was the case before. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's have a numbers round. Um, Emily, did you bring a number? I did. I did. We're supposed to bring one every week, so I'm on it. One. Well done. Thank you. Sometimes I forget. $1.05 billion. That is how much... um, Paw Patrol, Paw Patrol merchandise sells sold in one year last year. Um, Paw Patrol is a TV show, and there's this great feature story in Bloomberg by Jerry Smith, an ex Huff poster, who um, writes this delightful story about how much money Paw Patrol makes. This is a lot of money for a television show, and the uh, second it, only it, to is Mickey. It, is it like Star Wars? Are they making more on the merch than they are on the TV show? Yes. Um, second only to Mickey and um, talks about Paw Patrol's creator, who also did um, another kid show that I forgot. Oh, Bob. He did Bob the Builder. Uh, of Bob yeah, the Builder fame. Of Bob the Builder <laughs> fame. Of building fame. And um, just how unusual it is in this climate for a TV show for kids or really for anyone to generate this much money. And part of it is because Paw Patrol um, appeals to girls and boys and a little um, wider age demographic, like two to seven as opposed to like two to four, whatever. But um, in this time when there's Netflix and Amazon and, and YouTube. YouTube is really popular. And YouTube. But you can yeah. get it's hard to get mass. on you can get Paw YouTube, Patrol, right? I mean, like if I if I type Paw Patrol into YouTube, I can sate I my five so. year old first. Yes, exactly. Um, but it is increasingly difficult to get like a mass audience of kids to like one thing now, which I know because I have kids and they just pull up Netflix and there's literally like a hundred cartoons that you could choose from. And and, and do they no watch a broad range or do they just wind up watching Paw Patrol? <laughs> My kids don't actually watch Paw Patrol. Which oh. I guess I somehow skated yeah, you, you, skated you, you, by on that you skated one. Skated by. Yeah. Uh, my number is forty three point seven million dollars, which is a throwback to our Jolo um, one oh, MDB yeah. um, episode, which was great, and it featured this chap called Tim Leisner, who was this Goldman Sachs banker who um, has now been indicted and there is a criminal complaint against him and he has pled guilty and he is forfeiting 43.7 million dollars of the money he made at Goldman Sachs which gives you an idea of how much money he was making at Goldman Sachs this is also by the way the guy who's currently married to Kimora Lee Simmons they're still married then they're still I wasn't married sure. impressive <laughs> um okay so my number is $1500 that is the price of a gallon of paint that was used on LSU's helmets. What? So wait, wait LSU what? is this a football team? This is a football team. So I somewhat say this in honor of this weekend's big LSU Bama game. Um, <laughs> who honestly, I don't care who wins as long as it can help my Wolverines. But um, I thought this was kind of fascinating. So um, LSU for they had a night game at the beginning of the season, and they wanted, I guess, the athletic director, like most idiot athletic Are these, directors, like, glow in the dark helmets. So no, they change color. <gasps> they change. Yeah, apparently they shift from purple to gold. And so it was not only was this $1,500 for a gallon, also every helmet needed like four coats of this paint. And I think they only use the helmets for this one game. 
What? Like, I could be wrong about that last point, but I think it's just I found this just ridiculous. And just an example of like. And yet you can't pay the, the football players. Yes. That's right, because it's. I mean, amateur. they can they can be running around in fifteen hundred dollar helmets, but they can't earn any money. But if they get, Wait, but, but how cool is that paint? I kind of want it for like a bedroom in my house. Fifteen hundred dollars. I feel like you can probably get it on a Bentley if you ask. <laughs> I'll get my at some, at some enormous cost. If anyone has has discovered, like you know, which cars have the option of having crazy paint that I guess it changes color when it gets dark. It's is in the it? dark, yes, because it was from that night is game. So cool. <laughs> and it's like this is the most ridiculous success, and Emily's like, "Can we get like, that for our awesome. house? Can we get that? <laughs> I want to, I want to paint that on the outside of my house, and my house glows with gold in the dark. It changes colors. Nice. We. How many gallons of paint does it take to paint a It seems like they needed a number. I mean, I granted, like the football helmets aren't huge, but as I've said, they needed four coats of paint. So you have guessing it. This is for all their players, not just their starting. And how many how many helmets are there per team? I should I should in fact totally know this, but I do not know the number. I don't. A lot. There's lots of players. It's not. Yeah, it's more than eleven anyway, or more than fifteen. Is it fifteen or eleven? Well, no, you have on the field at any given time. Oh boy, eleven. It's eleven. Yeah, I was gonna say it's definitely eleven. I'm like, wait, I. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, because it's twelve on the field. Show, like, no. Anna's supposed to be the football geek. It turns out there are lacunae in her football. No, moment. I just was for very quickly, slightly like, wait, am I saying the wrong thing? <laughs> if you know anything about American football, do not write in on Slate Money at Slate.com because we find it confusing enough already. Max understands it, I think. Max, Max is the only person who will read those emails. The rest of us will be like, what? Football? <laughs> who? But no, Anna will care about someone yes, playing someone. because Michigan is playing Penn State this weekend <gasps> and it's a big game. This is one of our last big games in like a three game. We beat it. We beat Michigan State, which was beautiful. Um, so now if we can beat Penn State, then we have a pretty solid ride to the Ohio State game and that would be amazing. And then also, if depending on who loses in the LSU Bama game, there's a possibility that we could move up in the rankings. So that would be awesome. Yes, go blue. Well done to Michigan for beating Michigan. <laughs> oh, I, there is I, a I thought I thought that Michigan was going to beat Michigan, and in fact, Michigan, be, be, Michigan and Michigan, Michigan State so, are very different. So things. there you go. Um, sports ball, we love it. Um, Apparently, you can have up to eighty-five people on a team. Right. Wow. Like 85 helmets? Potentially. Whoa. And you must need some backup helmets just in case, right? Well, what would that, that would include the reserves, right? Yeah. That would, that would presumably include the backup. But maybe. That's but a lot yeah, of paint. But what happens if you're wearing a helmet and then it gets, you know, dented? Then don't you need to replace it with, like, your backup helmet? Wait, if you paint your helmet. Is it then now they have the helmets that always glow in the dark or were these special helmets? I'm pretty sure too? this was just for this one game. Whoa. Okay, this this has been the more one of the more surreal numbers that we've had. I think it's my room. favorite Anna number. <laughs> it is a very Anna number. Um, one day I'm going to go to a college football game and it will all make sense because I've been hosting Slate yes. Money. I don't think it'll make sense. No, you can come to Ann Arbor. You can go to the big house, the best college stadium. Oh boy. Um, yeah, we'll 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 have a we'll have a a Slate Money outing to the Midwest. It would be amazing. Um, thank you anyway for listening to Slate Money and for putting up with this numbered round uh, we will talk about IBM in the plus segment but other than that many thanks to Max Jacobs for producing and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money Slate Money